Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today, for you anyway, is April the 20th, 2018. That's 420, some of you know what that means. Uh, good day for anarchy, I guess, right? For me, uh, while well, I'm actually recording this, it is 4-19-18. Yes, I did the two shows on Thursday, so I'll probably be pretty worn out by the end of this one. But it is the easiest show for me of the week. The expert council does a lot of the heavy lifting today. And what do we have from the expert council today? I have two different perspectives on a condition called polychondritis, one from Doc Bones and one from Gary Collins. I thought it'd be good to have two different two different ways of looking at this problem. A medical doctor and someone that focuses on health and nutrition primarily outside of the world of uh, of, of drugs. And I thought it would be cool. And it actually came out really good to get both of them to co comment on this. Uh, I have a question on muskrats. There are holes in damn walls. Those damn the damn the, no the walls that hold the water in. And then the muskrats live in the dams, and then they make holes, and then the water comes out, and then you're not happy. You're sad. What do we do about it? We'll ask Jeff Lawton. Jack Spirico recommends conibear traps. We'll see what Jeff has to say. Uh, understanding price-to-earning ratios, a.k.a. P.E. ratios, with John Pugliano. Talking to business owners about cryptocurrency with Nicole Sauce. How useful is Tether in cryptocurrency trading with Benjamin Fitz? All about raising pastured poultry with Darby Simpson. Special occasion meads in sh a short period of time with Michael Jordan, the Bee Whisperer. And how close are government schools to death? Closer than you think, from me, myself, and I, Jack Spierko. We'll get into all of that right away today because we do not have any commercials today. We do not have a history segment for today. And I'll just say real quick, you should consider joining the MSV if you like this show and the work that we do because it's the number one way that I pay the bills. And that's the number one way that I'm able to keep doing this for you every day. So if you like this show and you don't want it to go away ever, consider becoming an MSB member. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on members, and let's get right into it. So again, I have a question here on a condition called polychondritis, which I'd never heard of before. It's an inflammation of the cartilage. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and play the, the two uh, answers back-to-back, -back. one from Doc Bones and one from Gary Collins. And I'll come back with a few thoughts, and we'll go on to our next one. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the top survival medicine website, doomandbloom.net. Also, Blog Talk Radio's Survival Medicine Hour and co-author of the award-winning third edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, The Essential Guide for When Medical Help is Not on the Way. This week's question for the expert counsel is from Tom, who writes, What routines, including diet, exercise, and potential herbal remedies, would you recommend for strengthening and repairing cartilage? My wife recently got diagnosed with polychondritis, an autoimmune disorder that attacks the cartilage. We're looking at modern medical solutions, but we'd also like to be able to boost that with something more natural and in our control. We've started following a more paleo diet, but that's a more recent change. We don't know if it's helping her yet. Our next step is to try switching to an AIP diet and see if that helps prevent future flare-ups. I don't think that in itself would help repair what has already been damaged, but I'm not a doctor nor do I play one on TV. Thanks, Tom. Tom, I played a doctor on TV, and it's not all it's cracked up to be, believe me. Relapsing polychondritis is a condition associated with repeated episodes of inflammation and deterioration of cartilage, as you say. 
It affects about 3.5 per million people in the United States, and it is an often painful and deforming disease. Matter of fact, causing serious effects as well on the respiratory tracts, heart valves, and even blood vessels. How polychondritis develops is still very poorly understood, but it's thought to be related to, as again, as you say, an immune-mediated attack on essential proteins in cartilage. Polychondritis is hard to diagnose because it seems to be quite variable in its presentation, with some joints affected in some people, not in others. You can have cartilage in just about any part of the body. You have it in areas you don't necessarily associate with joints, like the nose, the ribs, or the respiratory airways. Interestingly, a clue might be in the ear of all places. At one point or another, 90% of polychondritis sufferers have inflammation of the outer ear where you indeed have cartilage, causing it to become swollen, red, warm, and painful to light touch. This comes and goes at regular intervals. For mild cases limited to joint pain or arthritis, oral non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like ibuprofen may be used. Now, other treatments typically involve medications much stronger Things that suppress the immune system like methotrexate and, of course, corticosteroids. Corticosteroids are frequently used for more serious disease. What are some other options? Maybe glycosaminoglycans, or GAGs. These are carbohydrates that are found in numerous cells in the human body. They perform a variety of functions, uh, including metabolizing complex sugars. Usually, the body does that without difficulty over a period of time, but certain disorders render the body unable to perform this process. The majority of GAGs in the body are non-protein hyaluronic acids, while others include things like chondroitin, you've heard of that, and heparan sulfate molecules. Now, these GAGs play a large part in cellular development, repair, and replacement, and many believe that chondroitin supplements improve joint mobility by enhancing lubrication. General dietary recommendations include supplements containing vitamins A, C, D, and K. The University of Maryland Medical Center, it's a conventional medical research center that does study a lot of dietary and alternative remedies for various problems. Now, of course, these are geared to general arthritis issues, but their anti-inflammatory diet that they recommend includes boosting consumption of things like fresh vegetables and fruits, whole grains, legumes, lean protein from cold water fish and poultry, and healthy fats from olive oil, nuts, seeds, and avocado. The University of Maryland Medical Center suggests garlic, onions, parsley, watercress, celery, and lemon for their anti-inflammatory potential. Include those in your diet. Your joints require water also to be remain lubricated, so UMMC does recommend getting six to eight glasses a day. Now, some believe that the AIP protocol, something that you were talking about, Tom, the autoimmune protocol diet is an option. Now, this is a very restrictive diet that is stricter even than the paleo diet, which involves the elimination of grains, legumes, dairy, and processed food, things that are thought to be irritants to the GI tract. Moderate exercise, physical therapy, these are also useful under the supervision of a professional, although as different areas are affected in each patient in terms of the inflammation, therapy may differ in each case and results may vary. That, at least so far, is probably what can be said for most natural methods of treating polychondritis. The problem, Tom, is that the hard data available is mostly for rheumatoid and osteoarthritis. We need a lot more research into immune-related polychondritis before we have the answers we really need to help your wife. 
This is Joe Alden, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for checking out, by the way, our Survival Medicine Podcast, our Twitter at Prepper Show, and our YouTube channel at DR Bones Nurse Amy. Thanks for listening. Hey, do your family a big favor by getting more medically prepared with kits and supplies from Nurse Amy's entire line at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. Oh, don't forget that the Member Support Brigade gets a special coupon code for discounts off anything in our store. Hey everyone, this is Gary Collins, creator of the theprimalpowermethod.com, which will soon no longer be. Don't fret, it's good news. I will have a new website called The Simple Life Now, which will be replacing Primal Power Method. And also, don't worry, the supplement line will still be there. I've got some really exciting new supplements to burn, that I'll be bringing in that I'll announce in the, the near future. The labels are changing. You should start seeing some of them in your orders. It'll be called The Simple Life, and it the label will correspond. And also, my new book series, which will be called The Simple Life. The first book is in digital uh, format with the print version coming out hopefully within the next week. It should be live. It's in on pre-order though. You can pre-order it now. The book is called The Simple Life Guide to RV Living, The Road to Freedom and Mobile Lifestyle Revolution. So make sure to go out and get that. It fits well with my going off the grid book. As you guys know, I do both. Um, live in my RV and live off the grid different times of the year. With Tom's question, uh, his his wife was recently uh, diagnosed with polychondritis, which is an autoimmune disorder that tends to cause problems and attack the cartilage, which it can be kind of painful. It's related to rheumatoid arthritis, which luckily she does not have because that is a far more complicated uh, disease. Now he's looking, they're looking for remedies in the natural side that can help rebuild the cartilage and control the inflammation. They just started the paleo diet, which is a great way to go. And they're looking at the AIP diet. I'll briefly get into that. That's a question for a whole nother time, the AIP diet, but just look at the AIP diet as, as the paleo diet on kind of like steroids. It's, it's, it's an elimination diet, but it's, it's very, it's targeted. Um, paleo is a great way to go. They should definitely see some benefits. You, you know, you give it 30 days and do it very strict and follow it to the T you know, don't be playing around with it. Um, with the AIP diet, basically, just to kind of, without getting into it, just to, so you guys have an idea, the two biggest things that are not allowed, which are a big difference between it and paleo, is nightshades, which are tomatoes, potatoes, peppers, eggplant. Those are the biggest food items, and there's also some spices included in there, mainly from chilies. And, you know, you it's low sugar too, so it's usually no sugar. I mean, and no fruit, hardly if any. I've seen some different kind of, you know, everyone has their own take on this stuff, but that's kind of the general concept of it. It's it's to control, it's a severe elimination diet and to really control inflammation. It eliminates almost everything. So hopefully, uh, you know, you can progress into that. Now, when it comes to the supplements, I recommend, and I've used this in the past to help control inflammation. I know Jack has as well, and I've used it with clients. Here are my big four. Glucosamine conjointin. That, I've used that. I had joint problems when I was just 
overtraining like mad and working on my house and doing all kinds of other stuff. And I've taken it over the years. It takes about four to eight weeks to kick in though. You have to give it some time. It's not a miracle supplement as none of them are. So give it some time. It takes a while for it to work. I've had great success. That would be the most successful supplement when it comes to cartilage, uh, regrowing cartilage and helping the cartilage process. So now you, you also have to control the inflammation with that turmeric fish oil. Uh, you know, Jack and me huge believers in turmeric. I've had nothing but success with that supplement, obviously fish oil. And also I want to recommend for a topical solution and you can take it in pill form is CBD oil. Uh, CBD oil is new. It's a little controversial, but guys, it's not pot. It comes from the hemp plant and it cannabinoid oil. That's what it means. Uh, so there's no THC or very little by law. There can't be, I think it's over 0.03% if I remember right. Um, but there's some creams out there that I would recommend to use topically. And so if she's having knee pain, elbow pain, whatever her joints, I rub that on there. I use it. I, I find it to work fantastic. So those would be the ones that I recommend, uh, you know, you just want to keep that chronic inflammation under control and work on that autoimmune condition because this could be fully reversed. It, it, I have found, as I've explained in other others, where usually our bad diet catches up to us around 35 and 40. Right in that time, we start having weird, strange kind of uh, health conditions that start popping out, usually in the form of eczema, migraines really bad seasonal allergies, food intolerances, joint pain, you know, tired, fatigue, crankiness. I think that's just getting old. I think I get more crankier every day. But uh, I hope that helps. And if you have any questions, throw them in the comments there. And also, I do sell the turmeric and fish oil on my website. Throw that in there. All right, guys. Take care. Big fan of glucosamine and chondroitin, um, so definitely with that. We actually have my dog, Max, who's quite aged and has a lot of joint problems on that now in, in fairly heavy doses, but uh, he hasn't been on it anywhere near long enough to really see results, and, and my past experience with it is it does take time to build up in the system and have a result. Uh, actually, some pretty similar recommendations there between Bones and Gary. Uh, on the diet side of things, which was uh, actually quite expected. I would just say that like, there is something in our diets and in our environments that is causing these types of conditions and numbers not seen before. And no matter what they're called, they all have one thing in common. They are all inflammation, and, and just about anything that causes inflammation... Um, other than like a broken bone, right? So there's a mechanical problem that will cause inflammation. Uh, but just about anything that's like an inflammation-based illness is an autoimmune response. It's the immune system responding where there isn't really a mechanical physical problem. It's somehow confused and thinks, oh, I need to, to be inflamed. So for instance, when you, if you sprain an ankle, why does the body create inflammation? And the reason is to immobilize you. So that the joint can heal. That, that's why you have that response. 
And there's a lot of other immunoresponses that have similar reasons for them, either to suppress the ability of a pathogen to take up residence in your body or even to expel it or to prevent it from getting in. That can be done with uh, nasal congestion. That's part of what that is uh, when it's for the right reasons. Um, when the body thinks something's wrong and it's not sure, it can cause these different types of inflammation. And this is why I'm always for going with some sort of elimination diet first. And also then think about environmental exposures as well. Now, I'm not a health nut. I'm not a purist in any of these things. I'm not like, you know, you need to make sure that you're chanting the right way toward the moon and sleeping with your head to the north and harmonizing with crystals and speaking to the goddess about purging. I mean, I'm not talking about that, but... You know, is there something in your life that's not in the life of most people that's an environmental exposure? And try eliminating those things if possible first and see what happens and give it time. Because the other thing, it's not just something like glucosamine chondroitin takes a long time to build up in the system and have a result. If you have an environmental or dietary agitator that's causing something like this or any, any inflammation, It takes a long, that doesn't generally, sometimes people, like you have a, a true allergic response to something. Let's say you have a peanut allergy. But you're not one of these people like, if you eat a peanut, you're going to die. You have a, like, but you get a rash or whatever if you eat a handful of peanuts. They eat a couple of peanuts, they get a rash. Okay? And that's how we think of a response to a dietary problem. However, some of these problems like this, these chronic problems, they might take exposure to a particular dietary component over weeks, months, or even years to cause the problem. And if that's the case, and that has been building up for that long, it may take quite a long time of elimination before the problem begins to correct. And specifically begins to correct to the places where you really feel better. So have some, I guess faith is the right word, in that walk and try it for long enough for it to be meaningful, uh, a minimum of 60 to 90 days on the elimination diet before you convince yourself it's not going to help. Uh, and, and realize a lot of times that on these types of things, as you begin to feel better, since it's a very small amount at a time, until you feel really great, you don't really recognize the improvement. So a lot of times when people say, well, I didn't get much improvement, and then they go back to just eating as normal, and then, then they, ex they go very quickly back to as bad as it was. And then they can see that difference. They're like, holy crap, I didn't know how much better I felt. And, and I know like when I gave up carbs, when I first, like, the first time I gorged to reward myself for being a good boy, I felt like crap. And I was like, I can't believe this is how I always felt. So give it some time. Anyway, next we have a question for Jeff Lawton on how to deal with a damn, damn wall. And muskrats, the damn muskrats in the damn damn wall. All right, here we go, Jeff, take it away. Hi, Jeff Lawton here, coming to you from Australia. And I have a question here about muskrats and how to prevent muskrats digging into a damn wall and causing leaks. Uh, someone's just bought their property, and they have a three-acre pond on it, and um, they want to try fixing leaks, and there are signs that muskrats digging into the top sides of the damn wall and the contractor says that it's very likely the cause of the leaky pond um, and they know they're attracted to the pond because of all the edible vegetation that is present and they actually like the pond as a natural ecosystem and um, they don't want to eliminate the food but they want to know how to control the muskrats and they're thinking they might have to just constantly trap 
to stop them damaging the situation. Well, I'm thinking straight away that that damn wall wasn't very well compacted because if you have a very well compacted wall that has had a high clay content, most things can't dig in the wall, especially on the water side where it's got that extra maintained compaction um, and the dampness. But it could be something else. It might be that you have a very low freeboard as well. So the amount of wall, the constructed dam wall that is sticking out of the water, that's the freeboard. If you have a shallow freeboard, the top of the wall can be a bit soggy maybe and allowing for extra sort of digging possibilities by muskrats and other such things. So one, I'd check the integrity of the wall. Is Does it need well compacting? Does it, are you going to empty this dam, let the water out, and then really rebuild it a bit and um, make sure you get a very good high compaction on that wall? Um, also, make sure that the freeboard is... If you're a three-acre pond, um, you've got a reasonable-sized pond. So I would go for at least... Uh, one meter sticking out of the water, that's 39 inches. I, I go for 40 inches, let's say at least 40 inches of the dam wall sticking out above the water height when it, when that dam's going over the spillway. Now you definitely want, cause you, you just want that leeway in case there's a large surge of water. People like shallow freeboards cause they look pretty, but they don't look pretty when that dam comes down and you wash all that lovely clay material down the valley or wherever and you can't get it back and it's pretty hard to get more to fill it all in because you've already used the material that was underwater and it's not pretty if you've got to scrape it off the side of a hill and it's really expensive if you've got to ship it in from somewhere else so that's one thing now if it's none of those things and and you've got a good well compacted high clay content wall and you've got a good freeboard and you've still got muskrats problems, what you've got to work out is how deep do those muskrats go? Like how, how far underwater do they go down and dig? What's their, what's their depth? Um, and then, um, and does your dam go up and down? Does it, does it stay at roughly top height or close to top height most of the year? If, if you find out all those things, then you can stone pitch the inside of the wall. So you, it could be quite cheap too. You could buy in some some reasonable large. While, while you're building, it could be quite cheap. While you're rebuilding and recompacting, um, you get in some large road base rock. Start a thing that you stabilise driveways with. Gravel driveways are stabilised by large rock that you squash into the ground, uh, squash into the driveway and, uh, on hills to hold them together. So they could be like four, six, eight inch size rocks. Not too expensive. Um, to purchase in by the truckload, bring in on with a tip truck, tip them over the inside of the wall a bit and get your machine while he's in there to crush them into the inside of the wall. Now, if you wanted to pretty it up, you could buy fancy-looking rock too if you wanted, or you can nice big round rocks or whatever or change the size of rocks, but it's quite okay crushing rocks into the inside slope of a damn wall and that'll stop the possibility of the... Uh, muskrats digging their way in there um, it'll it'll hold it together now you can you can't plant taproot trees on a damn wall because they're deep taproot will go down and break the integrity of the wall to a certain extent and one day even if they don't do that they'll die and pipe the wall through 
Um, and one big danger is, is when they're half grown and they get covered with mist and they're heavy and you get a screwy wind just when, that, uh, when they're real heavy, they can crack the wall. But you can use clumping bamboos, you can use running bamboos if you're brave, um, and, you can, and, and you can use willows. And willows don't have a tap root, they have a big hair root. So um, you can use willow and stone or clumping bamboo and stone and, and really pretty it up. Uh, you might not be into bamboo because it might be something that's non-native. You have some native bamboos in America, but mostly running. Um, but there are some, some, some beautiful willows that are native to North America, and they can go on the inside of the dam wall, right near waterline, um, in amongst the uh, stone, and their hairnet root will actually increase the integral strength of your wall. So I'm, I'm sure it's not too big a problem. Um, other than that, I'll be looking at natural predators and muskrats. Um, and I don't know how warm you are, um, uh, but maybe you don't want some alligator in there or giant muskies or big pike or something that chew them down. And um, I don't know. But there's a few creative options, I'm sure. Okay, there you go. So I, I, I agree with Jeff's assessment on the repair and the prevention of uh, further damage to the wall from a standpoint of plantings. And I think the rock being forced into the dam wall might actually be somewhat of a deterrent to uh, muskrats. But I, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that muskrats probably do not live in Australia or the United Kingdom, and they probably don't have anything like them. And if you have a compacted clay wall... A muskrat absolutely can and will burrow into a very, very compacted clay. Uh, they are ruthless burrowers. Uh, I have seen them burrow into very compacted ground on streams, uh, ponds, etc. However, I've not ever seen them be that much of a problem. When I was a kid in high school, one of my many ways of earning extra money was trapping. And I did most of my trapping of muskrat with 110 conibears, which is what I would recommend, and probably anybody with any experience of trapping uh, uh, muskrats would recommend as a 110 conibear trap. Uh, always with conibears, be careful of the sets. Try to set them in a way that your prey is likely to get into them, but nothing else is likely to ever uh, actually get into them. You know, always remember with conibears, unlike your leg hold traps and all that can maybe cause a little bit of pain or discomfort and maybe even a, a numb leg or whatever, a conibear trap is a killing trap. And that means when the wrong target species, the non-target species gets into it, it's either serious injury or death, depending on the size of the conibear and the size of the non-target species. But... I would be for fixing this and then seriously reducing the population of muskrats in this pond. As far as natural predators, they don't have a lot of natural predators. If you had some muscalons or pike in, in, a, in a lake that size, you might be able to. Um, they might feed somewhat on young muskrats, but it, it's not that they're not capable. It's just not real. I, I've never seen it happen. I've never seen a muskie take out a, 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 a muskrat. Um, it's going to take out some pretty big fish, but I, I've, I've not seen that. Uh, I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I'm saying it probably doesn't happen enough to work, and it doesn't sound like this is a place where you would have alligators. Uh, muskrats usually don't live in alligator country, and alligators generally don't live in muskrat territory, so I don't think there's much of an option. Um, 
large Raptors might take Muskrats, given the right opportunity, but that's, again, it's something I haven't seen. Uh, you're generally, I guess you would think, your larger feline predators, maybe lynx size, you know, like you can't just stalk those. Mountain lion, that's probably a bigger problem than a muskrat. Uh, I think this is kind of something you're going to have to do on your own. There's really no uh, large aquatic snakes capable of killing muskrats. Uh, they might, again, raid uh, raid nests and kill babies, but uh, a muskrat's pretty formidable. They're uh, they're kind of like a small beaver, and I mean, I would just put it this way: I wouldn't want to fight one, especially if I was in the water up to my neck. I would. I mean, you get tore up. Um, I've seen a dog tore up pretty good by a muskrat because a dog didn't take the the, the size of the animal serious enough and didn't have that killer instinct. So they're a tough animal. The other solution to them involves a twenty-two uh, and headshots, and uh, they are generally pretty easy to snipe. At night, if it's legal where you are, with a good light and a scoped 22 rifle, at least at first, at least at first, they tend to wise up. But I would, I would look to be a, if these guys are actually a problem for you, damn. And it's not just a contractor saying, oh, they're probably doing it too. Um, then, then the, the population has to be put in check. And, and only way I know to do that is trapping and, and the gun. That said, they're pretty tasty. I know I, I mentioned this recently uh, on a show. And people are turned off by it. But muskrat is is pretty tasty. And, you know, I mean, I, I used to eat them all the time when we trapped them. Now, there was a, a pond that was more cesspool-like than pond-like um, that I trapped a lot of muskrats out of behind an uh, industrial facility. And I did not eat those muskrats. Uh, but in just about every other place, mostly creeks and things like that with good, clean water, um, the meat is incredibly mild and clean. They, they don't eat anything but vegetation. Uh, they're a completely uh, herbaceous species, so um, they're really good to eat, so problem-solution type thing going on. Uh, it is possible, I guess, that if you make other parts of the, the uh, lake more uh, appealing to them and make the dam breast less appealing to them, maybe you can find coexistence. I would still keep the population in check because, again, they are... They are hey, an animal that they call them, they're not a rat, they call them a muskrat. But one of the reasons is they breed like rats, um, and there's not a lot that really predates on an adult muskrat, only on the young. And the adults, if they are around, as much as I said I wouldn't want to fight a muskrat, the last thing I'd want to do is try to get a baby muskrat out of a hole while a mama muskrat was in there. Trust me. 110 bear traps and develop that skill set. Uh, let's take another one. We have one now on P.E. ratios for John Pugliano. Hello, TSP listeners. Today we have a really good investing question from Chris in Georgia, and he's asking about price-per-earnings ratios. And I wanted to cover this question because it's relevant not only to the specific topic that Chris is asking about, but also to the, the broader question of, of what type of metric are you using to judge value or the price that you should be paying for your stocks? Or when you're asking yourself that question of should you be invested in the stock market or should you be moving to something safer like a money market fund because you're concerned about a market correction or some other type of you know problems where the stock market is overvalued or for that matter any market, the real estate market, cryptocurrency, whatever. You know, it all comes down to judging value. 
So here's Chris's question, and I've modified it a little bit because he's not only asking about price-per-earnings ratios, he's also going into more depth about something called a Schiller price-earnings ratio, and he provides a link to some graphs and charts and things, and I'm not going to get down into those details with you today. But in general, here's Chris's question. Why does it feel like the average price-per-earnings ratio is going up? Does the Federal Reserve policy affect stock price per earnings ratios? Chris goes on to give us some background to his question, and he says, I think that most informed brokers would agree that the stock market right now is overvalued. If you look at the standard price per earnings ratio, the long-run average is about 16. And the last time we were below that level for any significant period of time was about 1986. There was a short period in the late 80s, and then again around 1995 and 2007 and 2011. And then, you know, Chris goes on to give some more detail, but you see the gist of his question. He's saying that, hey, I think stocks are overvalued. Chris is saying that if he looks at the established arbiter of of stock value, which is a price per earnings ratio, and that's where you take the price of the stock and you divide it by the earnings that that company generates... On a per share basis, you'll come up with a ratio. And as Chris mentions, the long-term average is 16. And so the rational conclusion would be that any time we're above 16, we're above the average, and then therefore, stocks must be overvalued. But is that really true? And Chris doesn't specifically ask that, but you can see the dilemma that he's kind of fighting with himself in his question because he says, hey, I know the average should be 16, But yet, over a 30-year period, it only really was at or below that for a brief few periods of times. Late 1980s, 1995, 2007, 2011. Now, again, Chris didn't specifically ask this, but I'm reading into his question where he's saying, hey, this average should be at 16, but if I wait for the stock market to get down to those levels, I'm going to be out of the stock market for significant periods of times, maybe a whole decade of sitting out and not participating in the market. And that's the biggest question I've heard from people over the last few years for sure. People are so worried about a significant market pullback that they're moving to cash too early. So Chris initially asked, you know, why these price per earnings ratios seem to be so high? Why are they overvalued? Does it have to do something with Federal Reserve policy? And yes, Chris, it absolutely does. And specifically, uh, what it has to do with is not so much you know, indirectly Federal Reserve policy, but the direct result of that monetary policy and what it has on interest rates. And you see, that's because value is relative. It's comparative. If I ask you, what type of cheese do you want on your bacon cheeseburger? Do you want American cheese, Swiss cheese, mozzarella cheese? Right? I, mean, I can come up with all types of selections of cheese for you to put on your cheeseburger, and you may have to take a minute to think about that because, you know, hey, are you in the mood for provolone or would you rather have Swiss? But there's not a whole lot of value difference there. And that's compared to if I would have asked you, hey, would you rather have a cheeseburger or a filet mignon? Well, I think most people would go for the steak because there's a clear difference of value between ground beef and quality prime beef. And so when we're talking about value, it's always on a comparative basis. And in the field of investing, the primary thing that we measure everything else against is U.S. Treasuries. And so everything else is measured against that standard. And when it comes to price-per-earnings ratios, 
And this is why they're really important for you to understand. And if you do, why you'll know so much more than the general population is because everything can have a price per earnings ratio attached to it. You can attach one to what a U.S. Treasury is worth. You can attach one to what your home or a real estate property is worth. You can attach it to what a college education is worth. Here's how you do it. You take the price or the cost of whatever asset you're, you're purchasing. If it's a stock, you use the stock price. If it's a piece of real estate, you take the total cost of purchasing and owning that real estate. And then you divide that cost by what the earnings are. In the case of real estate, the earnings would be how much would that land or that house produce if you rented it out. So if a stock is selling for $20 a share and it earns $1 per share, you divide 20 by 1 and you come up with a price per earnings ratio of 20. You can apply this same concept to an education. You take the total amount of money that it costs you to go earn a, a degree or a certification. You know, how much does it cost you to become a, a journeyman welder? Or how much does it cost you to get a PhD in economics? You take whatever that cost of the education is and you divide it by your future earnings potential. And that gets down to the heart of Chris's question. Why are these price per earnings ratios on stocks so high and so much higher than the historical average of 16? Well, if you go back over the last 45, 50 years or so, and you look at the average of the 10-year treasury, you would know that although it's varied, it has been substantially higher than about the 2.5, 2.8% that it's been over recent years. And in fact, I think the average is probably somewhere around 6%. And so with that amount in mind, let's figure out what would be the price per earnings ratio of a government 10-year treasury. Well, if you invest $1 in a treasury and it's paying 6% interest, that means that you would divide 1, the amount you're paying for it, by 0 0.06, which is the amount that you're earning for it. That's the 6%. And you know what you're going to come up with? You're going to come up with a number somewhere around 16. In fact, 1 divided by 0 0.0625 is exactly a price per earnings ratio of 16. And so, yes, back in the day when the average 10-year Treasury uh, interest rate was around 6, 6.25%, that produced a price-per-earnings ratio for government bonds of around 16 times earnings. Well, Shazam, magically, that happens to also be the long-term average of where the S&P 500 was over that same period of time because it was comparative people were willing to spend 16 times earnings to buy into the stock market because on a comparative basis, that was pretty much equivalent to the premium they would pay to buy the safety that was associated with government bonds. But now let's fast forward to the present. Right now, government 10-year treasuries are about 2.8%. So if we divide 1 by 0 0.028, you know what we come up with? We come up with a price per earnings ratio that's over 35, almost 36. And so by owning a government treasury, what we're saying is, is that you're paying a premium of 35 or 36 times earnings to buy that safety of the U.S. Treasury. Now let's compare that to the S&P 500. As I record this today, the S&P 500 is around 2650. And estimated earnings for 2018 are somewhere around, let's call them 155. Well, dividing 2650 by 155, 
gives you a price per earnings ratio of 17. So there you have it. While 17 is higher than the historic average of a 16 price per earnings ratio, a 17 times premium is significantly less than the 35 or 36 times premium you would pay to be in a 10-year government bond. And so to Chris's question, yes, Federal Reserve policy and interest rate policy has a definite impact as to why price per earnings ratios are so much higher than the historic average. The question is, and this is the million dollar question, are they too high? Well, again, I can't predict the future. I don't have a crystal ball. But right now, when I look at all the other alternatives, until we head into a recession, to me, they look justifiable. And I'll end this just by throwing out one other caveat. There was a time when I invested in the S&P 500 when the price per earnings ratio was 110. And I not only invested in it, I put every last dollar I had into it. I mean every last dollar. And I did that because I was not only looking at the price per earnings ratio, but I was looking at the overall fundamentals of where I felt future earnings were headed and the overall direction in the economy. And yet the next month, the price per earnings ratio went up to 119. And then over the next couple months, you know what? It went up as high as 120, 123. As far as I'm aware of, those might have been the highest price per earnings ratios of all time. But in spite of that, it was a great investment because the time I'm talking about was in early 2009, and I was buying into the market at its absolute low. And that investment went on to produce me a, a small fortune in returns. So the key point that I want to leave you with is that, yes, price per earnings ratios are extremely important, but they're important on a relative basis. And so rather than relying on one fixed number, you should always be comparing the value of one investment opportunity against another. Well, hey, Chris, thanks for the excellent question. If you'd like to hear more about my concepts of building wealth and my insight into the stock market, then please check out the Wealthsteading Podcast. For the expert counsel, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth. And that's why John Pugliano is on the expert counsel right there, because I consider myself to be incredibly switched on with financial analysis, but I would have never come at it that way and, and compared it to what would be the P.E. ratio of a U.S. bond. Uh, and that makes it very understandable. I uh, really appreciate John's contributions today. Next up, we have uh, two cryptocurrency questions. First, Nicole Sauce on how do you talk to business owners about accepting cryptocurrency? here taking a business and crypto question from Kurt. Kurt writes, it's Kurt from the greatest state of West Tennessee. Kurt, you and I are going to have to beg to differ there because Middle Tennessee is the greatest state. Anyway, Kurt asks, what is the best way to convince a business owner slash entrepreneur to start accepting crypto directly? What are the different concerns of an online business versus a brick and mortar store? And what concerns do you have as a business owner in this area? See you in April. Kurt. Well, Kurt, that really depends on who you are talking to and why they do or do not want to take crypto, I suppose. I mean, the real question you're asking me here is how do I make anyone do anything? So uh, the answer to that is you make them want it, and then that's a persuasion thing. So the best part of this question is that I am no expert on cryptocurrency, but I'm pretty good at teaching people to persuade people. So let's dive into that question. When someone does not want to do something, you can sometimes change their mind, but I have never found this to work with logic. It works with emotion. The old saying that people 
buy on emotion and justify with facts is very fitting in this situation. And I think especially money is a very emotional issue to people. That's their livelihood you're talking about. And uh, the funny thing about me saying that is people think they buy on logic, but they totally don't. If they, if they really dive deeply into why they bought that, that houseboat to ride around on the lake and why that particular one, there's usually something emotional that has triggered that choice. And then they're like, yeah, but the engine does this and it has like side jetty things and whatever. So, so then the question becomes, how can you make cryptocurrency desirable to someone? And for me, that leads to the question of contrast. How is their life painful? Really, really painful without cryptocurrency. And then how does having cryptocurrency make it way better? So you can't really, it's very hard to get people to, buy an aspirin, for example, if they don't have a headache, unless they know they're going to get one someday. So, you know, how much can you charge for an aspirin when I have a splitting headache? Well, I'll tell you this. I got the flu and was at the airport and I do not travel with uh, Tylenol because I hardly ever take that kind of thing. But this one was really bad. And I, I spent $13 for like 20 pills. So that's how much I spend when I have a headache. How much would I spend with no headache? The answer is... It couldn't be free. I wouldn't take if it was free because it would just bounce around in my bag until it turned into dust from the humidity in the air in Tennessee. So, Kurt, you, you kind of asked this question, right, as I've been having lots of conversations with folks over the past few months just about crypto in general. And that I think that's largely because of the November, December spike, right, that made people aware of Bitcoin. And as you talk to people about crypto, uh, I find it's like way back in the old techie days when the, the cloud first burst onto the scene. You know what I'm talking about, right? The cloud, that amorphous misty blob that floats in the sky and is sometimes there and sometimes times isn't. Yeah, that. And it has something to do with computers. I, I used to have to talk to people about the cloud and it was like the people who named it were purposely trying to ensure job security by confusing everyone about the cloud so that they could be hired to install Dropbox. It was horrible. And I'm like, this, this concept isn't hard. You're accessing server, server like farms in different parts of the country that are backing each other up. So if one goes out, the other one doesn't. And you can access your information from wherever you are as long as you have a connection to the internet. It's awesome. Actually, it's so awesome that my computer broke this week. And I am recording this on a different computer with the same version of GarageBand that I bought for my other computer that's broken because it was stored in the cloud and I could just install it again. Love the cloud. Anyway, I'm totally off topic today, though. What did I put in my coffee? Cryptocurrency is cryptic at best and hard to use at worst for most people. So, yeah, sure, once you get some and you understand how it works, it's it's all cool. You're like, wow, that's really easy. But in between, I want to buy some Bitcoin and actually spending it on something is a whole list of terms like blockchain and exchanges that can't be used in the US and you set up on those and then you can't do anything and doomsday naysayers trying to convince you that if you do this thing, the police will burst through your door and haul you away for, swear word alert, tax evasion. So... That is, it's it's kind of the same problem as the cloud. And so making it friendly and inviting, I think, is also helpful. And you're really good at that. I've, I've heard you talk about crypto, and you're very good at just breaking it down so that it doesn't sound threatening. But 
Then there's also the valid concerns that folks, business owners will have. And one thing that, that a lot of them are talking about right now and don't like is the unpredictability, especially financial unpredictability. When you're a startup like I am, um, excuse me while I say another curse word, the tax structure surrounding cryptocurrency is not exactly clear. And there's nothing I would hate more than to owe a boat ton of taxes in three years retroactively. Well, there are a lot of things I'd hate, but that would be really bad. And and even if the tax code is clear now to somebody somewhere, most CPAs don't haven't really caught up. So, you know, the, what's fun is like put five business people in a room and start talking about cryptocurrency and accepting it and how it works and if they even know what it is, this is what you're going to have. Um, and again, cuss word alert, taxes surrounding them, the discussion on taxes surrounding them will have five different opinions about what you should pay and how you should track it. And that's not good. I think that's that's a really big concern for business owners right now. Cryptocurrency is currently viewed as property and not currency. And so last year they took it off the exemption list for capital gains tax. So now we're pretty sure that every transaction, transaction currency, different currency to different currency could be subject to ta- capital gains tax. And to me, this sounds like a huge messy nightmare because like, how am I going to track it? How can they even find it? Like, am I just going to try to fly under the radar? Like, what do we do about this? And then we're talking about like $16 a pound coffee. So, um, that's something where you're like, okay, but they paid in Bitcoin and I want Dash. Well, okay, and now I'm taxed. I'm going from the Bitcoin to the Dash and the Dash to the cash. And I don't know. Like those sorts of things are not things that most business owners want to think about, track, or deal with. And then, of course, we have the tax advisors. It can be really hard to find one who knows what's going on with the tax code changes that just happen like to our tax code, right? They, they've got their hands full setting up 2018 because there were a bunch of changes that passed late last year. I think it was late last year. Maybe it was January. I can't remember. Um, and I ought to know because I was in, in between CPAs right then, like interviewing people and then that thing passed and I can't get calls back because my account's not worth the effort, right? So Kurt, in answer to your specific questions, what's the best way to convince a business owner to start accepting crypto? I don't really know. I do know this though. If you can get a person to use it and aware of it and comfortable with it and they understand it and they see that it works, if you can show them that, then half your battles won, right? And then if you can show the business owner the pain they have by not accepting it and the gain they can have by making this change, then you're most of the way there. Um, on to your next question. What are the different concerns of an online businesses versus brick and mortar? Again, I don't exactly know. I do know because I'm not working with a lot of brick and mortar stores, right? I do know that having accepted crypto both in person and in selling holler roast online with it, there are a few times that I've just had to to take a flyer and trust the other person as part of the transaction, you know, and, and they've always worked out for me. Uh, but I've always known the people where I had to do that. So that can be scary for a business. On the other hand, my online, and, and that's the in-person stuff, right? My, 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 um, online stuff has been handled through coin payments and I can tell 
that they've ordered coffee. I can tell that nothing's cleared yet. And then I can tell when something's cleared and then I know I have the payment and then I send them the coffee. They're the ones taking the leap of faith in that transaction. Like what happens if I don't send the coffee? Well, what happens right now is they go back to my website and, and, you know, have to deal with me directly. Um, back in the old days before they made that capital gains change, I used to take the cost of goods sold of anything I sell online out so I could cover my expenses and then leave the prof- profits in my wallet to do whatever crypto is going to do. So um, with that change, though, I have just been leaving 100% in. And it's this unclarity on transactional taxation that is it's actually a question we should throw over to Ben. I wonder if he has insights on that. Um, <clears throat> now I just leave when somebody buys coffee with, with crypto, I just leave it safe in its little wallet where it ends up and unmoved under the hopes that this code is going to improve at some point. And if it doesn't, you know, something will, I'll have to do something. But that means if I were to get 100% crypto orders at hollerose.com, I would be in a pickle because my bean suppliers don't accept crypto yet. They totally should though, especially in international transactions. I think it's way better to use crypto than all the other hoops I have to jump through. This this reminds me of a story. I got paid for a gig that I was doing in, in Houston and I came home with this this piece of paper with something written on it and I had to drive this piece of paper to a bank and put it in the bank and then write another piece because that was the business and then write another piece of paper out and drive to a different bank and put it in my personal account. And then at that account, they put a two day hold on it because of the amount of that piece of paper. And then I drove home and that whole thing took me like an hour of driving and running around and writing pieces of paper like it's a little absurd that that's considered more secure than if we had just done everything through crypto. So I really think the the potential of the systems that are that are coming to be used are going to are going to crack. It's just that it's it's in the very early adopter mode. And finally, you asked me what concerns do I have as a business in the area? I think I've probably covered those in the rest of it. I mean, honestly, only 5% of my total sales are crypto right now, so I I'm willing to risk that 5% to un- stable like price fluctuations and that sort of thing. It's not a big deal. If it was a higher percentage, I'd start looking more carefully at what that means and I, and probably looking for more for suppliers that will accept crypto so I can keep crypto to crypto and hope that I'm avoiding having to pay capital gains. Anyway, Kurt, thanks for this fresh question. That was a little outside of my norm. I'm sure if you asked any of the other council members, they would have a different perspective and it might be fun to hear it. Remember, folks, if you have questions on marketing, startup strategy, websites, or just plain old homesteading stuff, you can send it on over to Jack. And I do have a little announcement. I got my hands on a single farm source for beans from a a farm in Brazil, and it's fantastic. I've got about 500 pounds of this bean on hand, and all of the feedback I've had, I just sent it to a couple people to taste. Rave reviews from folks on this chocolate, caramel, cherry-ish flavored Brazil bean, um, and I bought all I could of it. So you can get your hands on some over at hollerroast.com. That's H-O-L-L-E-R-R-O-A-S-T dot com. Just click on the Brazil. And if you want to earn a little extra savings credit, be sure to log into your MSB account and use the coupon code there. And if you're not MSB, this is a good time to sign up. Okay, Jack, see you soon. And everyone else, make it a great week. 
Good, good stuff from Nicole. Here's, here's my ad going back to my old ancient sales training. There's a, sell, a saying in sales. If you're not getting enough yeses, it's because you're not getting enough noes. And, and what that simply means is that, you know, you should be, in sales, you say always be selling, right? ABCs, right? Uh, and so if you are, if you are looking to be an advocate for cryptocurrency, What you should be doing is anytime you have a transaction with somebody saying, hey, do you want, do you want Bitcoin or, or Ethereum or Litecoin for this? Will you take that? And if they just say, no, I'm not interested, okay, fine. But if there's like, if they start asking questions, say, well, you know, yeah, this is, I can show you exactly how to set it up, and then it's a private transaction between you and I, and, you know, you could decide if you want to turn it into cash or if you want to spend it somewhere else. I can tell you places that take cryptocurrency. Um, If you have a situation where a person has a capital-intensive business, they are going to be less likely to take cryptocurrency unless they see it as a major source of incremental revenue, meaning business they would other not have, that otherwise not have. And that's that's the aspirin headache thing Nicole's talking about. When you when you realize, let's say there's another 20% of business sitting there that would be incremental, you could get just because you took cryptocurrency, you, you probably will. But there's probably not a lot of businesses that can do something like that. And the, then there's the businesses that are big enough to, to make a significant impact just by taking cryptocurrency. Uh, they probably don't need anywhere near as much. You know, what, what is an additional 1% of business to Amazon, for instance, right? It would be a massive increase in business. So it's more of the person wants to be in crypto in some way themselves, and then you are the enabler. Right, that enables them to do that as maybe their first transaction for cryptocurrency, and when they realize it doesn't have to be difficult. Look, you download a wallet, okay, put it on your phone, boom, there's the money. Right, then they understand, you know, if they're open to crypto at all. But if they're in that capital intensive business, and let's say you're having work done on your property, and you have a thousand dollars worth of work, and they have like, you know, five hundred dollars of the bill is parts, and they put maybe a little margin on the parts they are probably not going to be real hip on taking crypto or silver for that 500 bucks. But the labor portion of the business, especially if they're self-employed, an individual self, you know, uh, a self-employed individual, a sole proprietorship, what have you, they might be very willing to take cryptocurrency if you just ask. And I've basically, and if you're buying from a private seller on anything, you want cryptocurrency? You want Bitcoin? You just ask. I mean, that's the easiest thing to do. So instead of trying to convince this one guy that you know that owns a business that you think they should take cryptocurrency when you're not in business and they are, right? Like, well, what do you know? Uh, you just ask any time you do business with anybody where you are at a decision-maker level. So I'm not suggesting that when you go into, you know, Walmart, you ask the cash register if she'll take Bitcoin. She just doesn't have a decision-making capability. But small business owners, et cetera, always ask. When you're going to buy something off somebody's website and they're an independent, obviously, owner of their website, contact them. Will you take, will you take cryptocurrency? Because, you know, they just might say yes. And the more people that ask, the more general acceptance that it gets. And it is getting used in its utility that will make it far more prominent and far better for everyone. On that note, we now have a question about Tether for Benjamin Fitz from Crypto Gulch. Hey, Jack and Survival Podcast listeners. This is Ben Fitz with Crypto Gulch. And today I have an expert counsel question on cryptocurrency. 
which comes from Dan in Connecticut. Dan asks, is Tether a useful tool when exiting a coin? I'm considering the use of Tether as an alternative to fiat. I have two situations in mind. Number one, a short-term exit from a particular coin with the intent to reinvest. Number two, exit strategy out of a particular coin with the intention of cashing out or spending. Thanks, Dan, for the great question. Tether is a very hot topic, and I need to go back to the beginning and answer what Tether is first for some of our listeners. USD Tether, US, uh, USDT, as it's listed on most exchanges, is a token that is supposedly backed by a dollar. So one USDT is worth one US dollar. It was created by um, the exchange Bitfinex, and supposedly every USDT is backed by one US dollar in a bank account somewhere. Now, one of the really weird things is that, especially towards the end of last year and the beginning of 2018, Bitfinex would print up hundreds of millions of dollars worth of Tether at a moment's notice. Where was that money coming from? Did they really have those hundreds of millions of dollars which were being added to their bank accounts to back the U.S. dollar Tether? So that's a really interesting thing and something to be aware of is that there's been a lot of rumors and speculation that Bitfinex is fudging the numbers and it's not really backed by $1 per Tether. And they've even been subpoenaed by the U.S. government as a result of it. So something to be really careful of. Now, what is a Tether and why would it be used? Well, some exchanges are not set up to accept fiat currency. When you sell your Bitcoin, you don't actually get one U.S. dollar. You get one U.S. dollar Tether per dollar. So you're getting Tether. So if you sell a Bitcoin for, uh, if you sell a part of a Bitcoin for $1,000, you're not actually getting $1,000 in fiat currency in your account somewhere. You're getting $1,000 worth of U.S. dollar Tether, which is really just another token. That allows those exchanges to not have to deal with some of the regulations and banking laws around fiat currency. And it's just been easier for some of those exchanges to grow. So those Tether exchanges are exchanges like Bitfinex, Bittrex, Poloniex, and Binance. Bitfinex, Bittrex, Poloniex, and Binance. The other exchanges, what happens when you sell your dollar is you actually get a do- if you sell your Bitcoin, you get a dollar in your bank account for every dollar. So if you sell it for a thousand dollars, you actually have a thousand dollars in your account on that exchange. You can have that money sent direct deposit to your bank account or wire transfer. You can also buy crypto using bank account or wire transfer with those exchanges. Those exchanges are Kraken, GDAX which is part of Coinbase. Gemini, that's the Winklevoss's exchange, which is based out of New York, which has stricter laws than the others because they're based out of New York. Bitstamp and CEX. Again, those are Kraken, GDAX, Gemini, Bitstamp, and CEX. Now, Kraken also trades in Tether, but the important thing is when you sell your Bitcoin, you're actually selling it for fiat and you can hold a fiat balance in dollars or euros on Kraken. So 
Back to Dan's question, he asks, can he do a short-term exit from a particular coin with the intent to reinvest? Honestly, that's the only reason to use Tether. There's no other good reason to use Tether. Tether is way too risky. It's potentially going to be found to be fraudulent and potentially going to crash the entire cryptocurrency market and burst the bubble. So Tether is a really horrible thing. You don't want to actually be holding any Tether at all if you can. Um, so Dan's issue is like, let's say I have Zencash and Zencash is only traded on Bittrex. So let's say the price was going down. I think, I think Zencash is actually going up. It's not going down right now. But if it was going down and I wanted to sell my Zencash and I wanted to hold that money in Bittrex so that I could buy some more Zencash when the price went down and just reinvest the money and buy more Zencash for less, right? So that's one of the reasons to use Tether because Bitfinex or Bittrex is the only place where I could buy or sell Zencash and it uses Tether. So, you know, in that case, you have to. Um, in a lot of cases, what I'll do is I will convert it to Bitcoin and I'll hold the Bitcoin instead of holding Tether because Tether is potentially value-less when it is found that there's not $2.28 billion in a bank account somewhere backing the $2.28 billion worth of Tether that have been printed, that's going to be fraud. And it's going to shut down all of those Bitcoin exchanges that use Tether. Um, and it's going to throw the whole market out of whack. And I'd rather be holding Bitcoin or Ethereum or another quality coin than holding Tether. Don't put very much of your money into Tether at all. Dan's second question is horrible. Dan, what were you thinking? If you want to exit strategy out of a particular coin with the intention of cashing out or spending, you wouldn't cash out to Tether. You would cash out to Bitcoin. You would exchange that Bitcoin to, uh, you would send it to an exchange where you can convert it to fiat. Or you would send it to an exchange where like Coinbase, where I can actually have a shift payment debit card, which links to my Coinbase account, and I can spend it like a debit card, you know, making a regular purchase. Um, so if the option is to cash out, you cannot cash out on a Tether-based exchange. It's just not possible. They deal in Tether. They don't deal in fiat. Um, and if you wanted to hold your Bitcoin or another solid currency, don't hold it on a Tether exchange. Tether exchanges are one day going to be defunct. I hate to say it, and I have some of my funds on those exchanges because they deal in some of the coins and tokens that other exchanges don't deal in. So some of my speculative investments have to go through those exchanges. But I only want to minimize my risk. So I only want to put a small portion of my investment into those because Tether is risky and Tether is probably going to die. It's going to be found to be fraudulent and it's going to crash the entire cryptocurrency market. And I don't know if I've stated that clearly enough for you. It is really, really risky. People that are in the know talk about this all the time. We are scared of Tether. So, 
It's a great question, Dan. It really is a great question. It's a really important topic for us to talk about. I imagine there's a lot of people on the show that have no idea what Tether is. And um, thank you for bringing this up so that we could talk about this really important topic. Thank you. And this has been with Crypto Gulch. Thank you, Jack, for providing us such a great forum. And look forward to talking to everyone soon on another episode. Bye-bye. I'm not sure that I agree that Tether will be found to be fraudulent. I'm not sure it won't be either. I may be not as pessimistic as Ben, but I see Tether as a short-term trading tool. I want to exit a position, and I want to be able to buy back into that position or an ulterior position quickly with minimal loss uh, in fees, etc. And especially in an exchange where... The, 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 the currencies I primarily want to do business in are traded on the Tether exchange. So, for instance, there are, there are exchanges where there's an, a Bitcoin exchange, there's an Ethereum exchange, and there's a Tether, a USDT exchange. And sometimes a currency you might want to buy doesn't trade on one or even two of those exchanges. It might only trade on the Bitcoin exchange. So it's a short-term trading tool. It's not a place to long-term hold. Uh, what I do see it possibly being is as they build more and more decentralized exchanges where there is no account information uh, and there is no way for government to track anything. And you can buy and sell any damn thing the hell you want. Um, then if Tether is used for that, Then you have a situation where it becomes very difficult for the government to enforce any sort of tax law, any sort of oversight whatsoever, which I think is the future of, of cryptocurrency exchanges. Like, if you have decentralized currency, why don't you have decentralized exchange? Just basically a platform that matches up buyers and sellers that's untraceable. And, and we will. And we'll probably have them within virtual nations that themselves are decentralized. Decentralized currency within a decentralized nation on a decentralized exchange. Good luck with that. But if Tether is the primary enabler of that, then Tether itself becomes the target. Because right now, if you can go take down any major crypto, especially something like Tether that so much depends on, you can crash the cryptocurrency market. And if government decides that's what they want to do, that would be a good target to go after. The thing is, there's nothing that prevents somebody else from building a similar platform. or And maybe backing it with some other currency, maybe a currency of a country that's a little bit less adverse to cryptocurrency, like Moldova. In fact, maybe one of these countries actually comes out with their own cryptocurrency, backed by their own currency, and says, traders, use it. It's possible. Who knows? We will see. But yes, it's a short-term trading instrument. And there's some real advantages there. Because if you are, let's say, holding something that trades in USDT and you want to exit your position, but you don't want to go into Bitcoin and, you, and it trades on the USDT exchange, you go straight to dollars. You don't have to go from there to Bitcoin to dollars. Right? And then that's one more trade, one more set of fees, one more time delay, especially if you're day trading and you want to quickly re-enter, it speeds everything up and sometimes minutes are lots of money. All right. Anyway, so that, that's what the tool's for. Uh, next up, uh, let's talk about pastured poultry with Darby Simpson. Hello again, everyone. This is Darby Simpson of Simpson Family Farm and the Grass-Fed Life Podcast. 
calling in to answer another question for the TSP Expert Council. This week, I've got a question from Zach, and it revolves around raising pastured poultry, and that's something we've been doing successfully on our farm for about 12 years, something I talk a lot about on the podcast and teach a lot about. It's an extremely profitable enterprise for us. And the way we manage our chickens is we have them out on chemical-free grass in chicken tractors that we don't let them out of. And we move those chicken tractors every single morning to a fresh paddock of grass. Uh, Zach's question really revolves around what would be the biggest downfall of free-ranging broilers. He is looking to build a chicken tractor uh, similar to my design, and Zach will circle back to that in just a minute. Uh, and he wants to keep them in some electronet and just kind of let them out. He's thinking of doing like a 50-foot by 50-foot square uh, with about 100 birds so he doesn't have to move the tractors as often. Uh, his main question is, you know, is, is weight gain the biggest problem by giving them more area? Or, you know, what's the biggest issue here? And, Zach, I don't think that weight gain necessarily is going to be your, your biggest concern. Um, honestly, I don't really think that's going to be a huge concern regardless. Uh, maybe a little bit. I mean, you, you, might, you might have a little bit more, uh, you know, caloric energy that gets spend, uh, spent uh, by letting the birds out and running around. Um, I think though, if you're talking about a, you know, like a Cornish cross chicken, I mean, they're really not going to free range the, the way you're, you're thinking they might, they, they will some, but you know, generally speaking, those guys just like to kind of sit there and eat. Um, you know, you probably would be better off in this type of a system to, uh, check out something like the red ranger or freedom ranger. They go by many different names. Basically it's a, a reddish colored bird. That's a kind of a hybrid between a heritage bird and a Cornish cross. They're going to take, you know, 11, 12 weeks or so to, uh, to raise, to get fat. Um, that would be my first suggestion, uh, that you probably would want to use a bird like that in this system. I think your biggest issue is going to be predation. Um, if you don't have some kind of, you know, uh, way to deal with aerial predators, you're probably going to run into some problems. Um, and, and then also on top of that, you're going to want to put these birds up at night. I, I don't, don't know what region you're in. You, you didn't mention where it was you lived, but from my perspective, you know, we've got red tail hawks here that would pick these guys off left and right. I mean, there are a lot of hawks on my farm. They're protected by Indiana state law. Uh, we've also got bald eagles that are now moving into the area. And then if I were to leave them out at night, um, you know, the electronet would probably, most likely, not guaranteed, stop small predators like possums and raccoons. Um, but my biggest issue now would be something like a bobcat, which is native to central Indiana. And they have been reintroduced by the DNR, and they have specifically been reintroduced onto my farm. So, you know, a cat is going to hop, I don't care if it's 42, 48-inch electronet fence, it's going to pop it, you know, like it's not even there and get dinner. And then once it finds a food source or once any predator finds a food source, you know, chickens are, are um, well, let's just, you know, say it like it is. They're at the bottom of the food chain. Everything eats chicken. Uh, so once they find that food source, they're going to want to come back. So I think that's your biggest issue. So... If you want to do something like this, I, I think 
in my opinion, and I've not done this, but I know people who have done it, and I'll give you a reference for that in a minute. Um, I would say you'd want to get a livestock guardian dog and or put the birds up at night. Train them to go into the chicken tractor at night. Make sure it is secure. And I would still tell you to move that chicken tractor every day. One of the things you mentioned is not wanting to move the chicken tractors off often to, to save on labor. You can't do that. Uh, you can't leave it in the same place for, you know, a week. Um, if you're putting 100 birds in it, they're still going to poop a whole bunch in that area while they're locked up for, you know, call it 10, 12 hours at night. You might be able to get away with moving it every other day, maybe, but that would be the most that you'd be able to get away with that. Um, now, when they're little itty-bitty guys for the first week or so out on pasture, sure, maybe you could move it a couple of times a week. Um, but I think as they get more mature, you're probably every other day. And then even close to the end, honestly, it's probably, it's still probably an everyday move that last week, week and a half. Um, a couple of things I'll, I'll reference here. Um, uh, if you want to watch a cool video, my good friend and business partner, Diego Footer, check out his YouTube channel. I would tell you to specifically look for a video he did with Luke Gross. Uh, Luke is from my home state of Indiana. He lives in southern Indiana, and he's got a really cool system, really cool setup on doing something like you're talking about doing here. So I think that's a worthwhile investment of time uh, to watch that free YouTube video. Um, you know, something else you mentioned, building one of my chicken tractors. Uh, happy to announce you can actually purchase uh, through the farmbusinessessentials.com website or through the grassfedlife.co website. Uh, complete step-by-step plans for my chicken tractor. We've literally just put that up in the last week. Uh, it's about a 70-page ebook. Uh, complete step-by-step instructions for assembly, cut list, material purchase, uh, some you know tips on how to manage things. A lot of value there, a whopping $20. Trust me, it's worthwhile. Uh, a good friend of mine who's a professional engineer put that together for us, uh, did an absolutely outstanding job. So if you're interested in building one of my chicken tractors, check that out. I think it's money well spent just to you know save the headache of trying to figure out how to put one of these things together. Um, so those, those are a couple of, of little uh, nuanced tips for you moving forward. But again, I think your biggest issue are predators, Weight gain, maybe a little. I mean, maybe it goes from, you know, eight weeks to nine weeks with the Cornish cross. Maybe it goes from 11 weeks to 12 and a half weeks with a ranger style bird. Um, you know, those are my thoughts on that. I, I really don't think weight gain is a terrible thing. And I, I, I think that, uh, you know, honestly, this is a good system to look into. I mean, it's something we might experiment with here this year. Uh, my biggest issue with this is I, I hate poultry netting. I hate moving poultry netting. I hate buying poultry netting. It's ridiculously expensive. Uh, and it's just heavy and kind of clumsy in my opinion. But this is a good system, particularly at the scale that you are talking about doing this. Uh, so really, those are my thoughts, Zach. I, I, I think, again, put the birds up at night and or get a livestock guardian dog. I think you put them up at night either way. You just train them to uh, you know, get fed. You maybe you give them a little bit of feed in the morning, but generally speaking, 
you need to be the Pied Piper of an evening when you go out there to take care of them, carry the feed into the chicken tractor, and just you know get them to go in and lock them up. That would be my two cents. And maybe uh, maybe you look into getting a dog as well. So anyway, Zach, I hope that's helpful for you. Uh, for the rest of you who found this conversation interesting, on top of the chicken tractor plans, if you're interested in raising pasture poultry for yourself uh, or for profit and making up to $10,000 an acre net, and no, I didn't misspeak, 10000 bucks an acre net is possible in a pasture poultry system like I run on my farm. We've got a standalone pasture poultry course through farmbusinessessentials.com. Uh, it is literally everything you need, A to Z, focused solely on poultry from brooder to freezer. Uh, we've got some downloadable printable guides for you. There are three of those uh, spreadsheets, all of my personal spreadsheets that I use for my farm business. Uh, there are three of those out there. We've got the uh, the chicken tractor plans, the nearly 70-page ebook uh, that's included, as well as about uh, over seven and a half hours of video on how to raise price, have butchered, and market pastured poultry very, very profitably. And we even include one of Diego's modules in there on business basics, uh, setting up your business, LLC, insurance, accounting, totally turnkey, nuts and bolts stuff, everything you need to go start a pastured poultry business, make some good money. Uh, through the end of this month until May 1st, that's a whopping 249 bucks. So if you're serious about making some money with pastured poultry, this is no-brainer category uh, in terms of how much information you're going to get from that course. So feel free to check that out. And as always, everyone, thanks for the questions. Please keep them coming. I appreciate you sending them in. I enjoy answering them. As always, everyone, have a great weekend and take care. Good stuff from Darby Simpson. Let's now have, we have a question for Michael Jordan, the Bee Whisperer, on a special occasion for the Mignon level mead. Hey, this is Michael Jordan with AB Friendly Company out of Cheyenne, Wyoming. I've been taking your questions on bees, apiary management, and the making of fine meads. I got a great question for Robert. Hopefully this works out for you, Robert. Uh, also has to do with altitude and climate for pressurization, as well as length of fermentation. Question for Michael Jordan regarding a filet mignon of an occasional mead. What mead would you recommend for a fairly experienced mead maker for a special occasion? Details. I have family gathering coming up in a year. And it being a Polish family... We are like our alcoholic beverage. Touche. I'd like to know what mead would you recommend making and what process for making it? Thank you, Robert. Robert, my man, thank you for this question. A filet mignon for a super occasion. I do have a list of meads for certain occasions. And um, you telling me that you're a mazer? Uh, we're going to go ahead and we're going to get a five-gallon bucket out or a five-gallon container, and we're going to make a what we call a three-plus batch. It's going to be a little more than three gallons, but because we rack everything down and we lose a lot of the must, we should get about three gallons out of it. So we're going to we're going to we're going to awe them with some greatness, and we're going to knock them the hell down with excellence. 
And I mean, that's the only way I can put this, that, uh, I think that if we get ready to do two five gallon batches, uh, you're going to have two different ones. Um, I need you to look up uh, 52 Meads in a Year on YouTube. It's our YouTube thing by MOJ666WYO on YouTube. Uh, the 52 Meads in a Year, kind of get a glimpse of like what we're brewing in and all this stuff for you, for those of you that, that haven't brewed yet or don't know what we're doing. But since Robert, uh, he says that he's an experienced mead maker, we're going to go with it, right? So Robert, we're going to do a caramel apple. And we're going to do a rhubarb strawberry, and we're going to do both of them as braggots, right? And we're going to do Irish braggots and not German braggots. So they're not going to be uh, grain impaled. They're going to be honey impaled, right, with no hops. So we're going to do straight grains, and we're going to do overbearing honey. Then we're more, we're going to do grain. So they're going to be Irish braggots more than German braggots. And we're going to do uh, a carameled apple. Braggot and a strawberry rhubarb braggot. So number one, the ingredients is one pound of caramel candy chunks, one pound of dry malt extract amber, 48 ounces of treetop cinnamon flavored applesauce. I think they come in 47.5 or 0.8 ounce jars. But we're looking for treetop cinnamon flavored applesauce. Three gallons of apple juice. We're going to be using Red Star Champagne yeast. Ten pounds of a buckwheat honey. Or try to get a very dark honey. And we're going to get an eighth cup of sugar. So how we're going to make this caramel apple braggot is we're going to bring three pounds of honey to boil. Adding the caramel candy and the treetop cinnamon applesauce. So once we get the... Honey boiling, add your caramel and your applesauce, and you're going to boil this for about 15 minutes and then dumping it into your fermentation container. Bring one gallon of apple juice to boil, adding your one pound of dry malt extract amber. Boil this for about 30 minutes and dump it in the container. Mix this up really well, adding both of them together. At this time, you want to add the rest of the honey as well as the juice. Mix very well. Try to get as much air into this. Shake it. Uh, and I and I would do this for a 48-hour time period. So, you know, two to three times a day. Shake that jug up. Make sure all the honey and all the, the must that you'll be getting is mixed really good. Right? After 48 hours, I want you to take your temperature reading. I want you to take your specifically gravity or your bricks reading, and I want you to write down your ingredients on a card. That way you can duplicate it and dump your yeast. Uh, use a air bubbler unit and let it blow off as much as you can, right? Because we're going to try to uh, aerate it and stuff later on. Because in six months after fermentation, I don't want you to cold crash it, but I want you to rack it. And when you rack it, I want you to rack it and get it away from the must and everything so you get a good, clear product. And after you rack it, I want you to shake it. I want you to introduce air to it, and I want you to shake the shit out of it. And I want you to dump in the eighth cup of sugar, and then I want you to bottle it. Now, you're going to get flip-top bottles because this is going to pressurize up and bubble with carbonation. And this is going to be a caramel apple braggot. 
It's going to foam a little bit like beer when you pop it. It goes great with parties. Uh, the aroma is going to be super apple-y and beer-like. And you've made like an apple beer. But the caramel sweetness is going to come out in this beer flavor. And it's going to hit everybody super hard with a great carameled apple flavor on the back end. And because you carbonated it like a beer, man, this is going to go over super great. If this sits for about nine months to a year and a half, you're going to be freaking out of the amount of alcohol. It should be about anywhere from 16 to 19% when finished. And the aging will give out a good caramel apple taste on it, man, That that's going to be really great. This is more of a, a working man's beverage, uh, heavy dinner, uh, gather around the pool table, football game. This is a great one for that. So we're going to go on to number two. Number two is the strawberry rhubarb braggot. You're going to need five pounds of frozen strawberries, five pounds of rhubarb. You're going to need about 16 fluid ounces of, it's called L&A Organic Cocktail Strawberry Rhubarb. L&A Organic Juice Cocktail Strawberry Rhubarb. About, you know, I think it's about uh, 164 fluid ounce jar. You need two pounds of Briss Crystal Number 10 Malt and, and, and get it crushed. That's B-R-I-E-S-S, Briss Crystal Number 10 Malt. Ten pounds of honey, two gallons of water, and you want Y-yeast, W-Y-E-A-S-T, dry mead, 46 Three, two, right? That's the yeast that we're going to be using. So as again, we're going to boil one gallon of water, steeping the two pounds of brisk crystal number 10 malt. We're going to do this for about 30 minutes. We're going to add it to the fermentation device, adding our 10 pounds of honey, and we're going to mix it well, dissolving all the honey. You're going to add your strawberries and rhubarb and the cocktail juice and mix it extremely well. All my fruits, I will tell you, I puree, right? That way the yeast and everything gets right into there and dissolves everything. And I'm going for flavor as well as the sugar content. So on anything with fruit, I puree. I mix it really well. And then I add the rest of the water and then I let it sit, right? Uh, when I added the strawberry rhubarb and the cocktail juice and I let it sit for 24 hours, Make sure you get your specific gravity and your temperature before adding your YI yeast of the dry mead 4632. Now this comes out with a bitter and sour mix. Uh, some people like uh, Sour Patch Kids or that kind of sour sweet taste that comes off sour and then hits you with a nice sweet aftertaste. With 10 pounds of honey, this will come off kind of sweet. We're using a dry mead yeast, right? So it's going to keep a lot of the residual of the sweetness in it. But it's going to come out sour because of the rhubarb and strawberry mix. And we're going to come out with a nice uh, sweet and sour mix from this with the grain. So this these braggots are extremely good. Uh, remember to let them sit for about six months before racking them off. Uh, the rhubarb one cold crash. Uh, and, and then bottle it. It's going to be more of like a, uh, a grainish wine. Man, it's, it's, it's super good. It's great for after dinners. Uh, 
meetings and stuff where you're just looking for a light drink and it's a great dessert drink. So uh, hopefully that those are kind of going to get you going. If you have any other questions on this, you can email me at A-B-E-E-F-R-I-E-N-D-L-Y-C-O-M-P-A-N-Y. That's A-B-Friendly-Company at gmail.com. I could probably get this out. I'm going to send a copy of this to Jack that he could probably post if he wants to. But it's basically strawberries, rhubarb, apples, man, it's... I've got two of them here. Braggots, I think, are extremely great mead, especially if you do Irish style where it's more honey, higher alcohol. Uh, most of your German braggots are more of a beer. So I think that uh, those are grains that they're adding honeys to. Basically, we're, we're graining out juices, and then we're adding a grain juice to our mead mix. So I think that those are pretty good. Uh, don't make your mead and then infuse it. I think that you lose a lot of flavors by doing that on, on my end. I think that that's you're, you're losing the sugars and contents that you need to make a good meat. Uh, this is uh, something I think that you should also think about when you're drinking. Drink with friends. Kind of watch what you're doing. Just don't go drinking all the time. Drink in a safe location. Get a ride home. Towing a limo is way cheaper than a DUI, so rent a limo and then have a tow truck come and pick it up and take you home because that's going to be cheaper than you driving and get a DUI. So hopefully that helps you, man, and I hopefully that your family enjoys it. Let me know what you think on a good braggot. Um, I would like to also thank Drew Sample from Capital City Gardens in Ohio. He came out to Wyoming for the Wyoming Bee College and spent some time with me drinking at the Mazer. And taking some honey home for beekeeping uh, back there in Ohio. That he's giving to some restaurants that they wanted to try some exotic honey. So I helped him out. But he got to try uh, some of these braggots. I'm drinking right now a cran apple braggot right now. I'm a, I'm a big fan of grain braggots. I think it brings out some really good uh, taste. Our Friar Tuck Christmas braggot that has the pine needle tea and stuff that smells just like Christmas. I think those braggots, those of you who were at Jack's uh, for the November event that got to taste that and see my son make the trick-or-treat mead, I think that you guys got to really taste what a good braggot tastes like. So I, hopefully that helps you out. Try a good braggot. Uh, come out. Like I said, Drew Sample got to try some braggots while he's here. I think he, he's a big fan of them as well. But I'm Michael Jordan, AB Friendly Company in Cheyenne, Wyoming. Help your fellow man. Right? You never know. Something like this, man, he might share good mead with you too. So, um, first of all, if you're going to do a braggot, I, I very much appreciate Michael's approach uh, to using, uh, or to not using hops. And a lot of people that make braggots do hop them. And a lot of people that make meads have started hopping meads. I, I, no. I just don't. No, no hopped mead for me. I've tried several different varieties, both homemade and commercial, and I, I do not think that hops go with meads. The other thing is I am not a fan of sweet meads and heavy meads, uh, and braggots generally are. And I would say this is Michael Jordan's braggots. They're very good braggots, um, and I like them okay. It's not a criticism of the the recipe the technique the mead maker or the braggot itself it's they're not generally my cup of tea uh, or my cup of mead so to say so for instance I am a pretty 
fond of a lot of different uh, red wines. Uh, in fact, there's not a lot of red wines that I don't drink uh, on occasion. But when it comes to whites, there's some wines that, like a, mus uh, a muscat. I, uh, uh, I no, no, just not anything cloyingly sweet. Um, I've had some damn good white muscadine wines, but almost everything made commercially is too sweet for me. So it's just, and it doesn't mean that that's a bad wine. It just means like I don't really care for it. So my point there is know your audience. So this is your family. You know your family. If they're not big on sweet, then you might take a different approach. I would humbly submit that one of the best meats you can make for somebody to try, especially if they're the type of person that likes drier alcoholic beverages, is my Three Flowers blend, which is per gallon you use three cups of honey and one quarter cup each of elderflower, uh, chamomile, and heather flower. So elder, heather, and chamomile, quarter cup of each. And my technique that I've outlined on the show before We start with, we use one gallon. If you want to make three gallons, make three one-gallon batches. It will be easier, especially, see, my concern for you is it sounds like you have this coming up. I don't know what that means, but it's probably 60 days, 90 days, something like that. You only have so much time, and you definitely finish things out faster with a small batch. And Three Flowers Blend itself finishes very quickly. Per gallon, uh, half cuvee yeast and half of Pasteur Blanc. Uh, and, and be careful and make sure it is actually Pasteur Blanc. There is a, uh, a, a Pasteur um, something Blanc. It's, it's not just you want Pasteur Blanc, nothing more. And uh, as an experienced mean maker and listening to my show, you probably know what to do from there. It will finish quickly. It will finish clear. It will have a dry, somewhat gentle bitterness, way different than hops. But it's not everybody's thing either, right? So go with what your audience will really like. And then in the end, that's up to you. But, I mean, I am a huge fan of that. The other thing I really think is one of my favorite things in the world is to make mead with a mesquite honey and prickly pear uh, cactus juice, about one quart of juice to the gallon, three pounds of mesquite honey, follow the Spearco procedure for the modified small batch, uh, same yeast. The thing about that one is, It will probably finish for you in 45 to 60 days. That thing screams to be aged. It screams, age me, please age me, at least two or three months uh, after I'm in the bottle. It gets that much better. And it won't be that it's not good, but for what you're looking for, you want that that's a year old. And the prickly pear cactus mead is one of the most fantastic things I've ever made in my life. And it's kind of a pain in the butt to extract the juice from the cactus fruits. Uh, I have not tried making with whole cactus fruit, so I can't advise you that maybe that's the way to go. If you want to shortcut it, I will tell you that like Mexican markets and stuff do have the prickly pear cactus fruits generally de, uh, de uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Not stemmed, um, de pricklied, right? They have all the spines removed from them. Uh, they're little hair-like spines in addition to the bigger spines in those, and you definitely don't want that in your final product. Uh, it could be a disaster for somebody that drank it and got a bunch of them in their throat. So. You have to be careful with how you do that. The few times I've made it, I've had people that were kind enough to bring me you know, a quarter or two uh, prickly pear cactus juice. Uh, good friends to have if you can find them. Uh, with whole fruit, I would say if you buy them, uh, you probably can just chop them up and throw them in at whatever ratio you normally would. And I'm going to try that myself. Uh, they're pretty much a seasonal product, though. Right now I've got cactus coming up with them on it, but they're nowhere near ready for harvest. And on the thorns, the thing is... 
If, as long as like some tor turtle or something or some you know, armadillo doesn't eat it on you. If you leave them on the cactus long enough, most of the thorns, in fact, do fall off. Because these fruits are how the cactus reproduce. They're full of seed. And basically what they do is they leave their, their thorns on until they're ready to be eaten and, and then propagated. Okay, so if you have a place where you can keep an eye on it, you can get some that are damn, not completely, but damn near thorn-free right off of the get-go. So I participated quite a bit today, so my anchor piece is going to be pretty brief for you guys. But um, Sentinel List in North Texas uh, sent me a link to a Miami Herald article, and I have a I'm not going to read it. You can go read it yourself if you want to. It came out about a month ago. Um, and he his entire comment was, Yeah, this will totally work out long term. And the concept of the article, like I said, I'll have a link if you want to go read it for yourself, is that uh, Miami-Dade has become such an expensive county to live in that they're having a hard time getting teachers in their schools. Not because they're not good schools, not even because they don't pay well as far as teachers' salaries go, but because of property taxes and cost of living in Dade County, The teachers that they want to come teach at their schools cannot afford to live where the schools are. So the solution is they basically will set up like dormitory-like environments for the teachers to live at the school. Oh, hold on, hold on, wait a minute. I, I'm, I'm having a problem with this. See, when you go to college, you have a crappy life in the dorms while you're learning your education So you can party and hang out and go to frat parties and stuff like that. But it's at least it's what it's really supposed to be is so that you're right there at the school, you get study and learn and focus on developing your education and your career. Then after you put all this money and time and effort and live in these crappy dorms for four years or more of your life, you get out and then that degree is supposed to buy you opportunity that allows you to have a better life than you would have had had you not gone to that experience and made those sacrifices. That's, that's the story. It's not exactly the way they phrase it, but that's the story we're telling all of our young people with the message of everybody should go to college, right? So the solution to these college-educated people being trusted with the education of our children is to create basically a dorm life for them at the school where they teach. This will work out great for teachers that want to get married, man. I mean... Can't you see? Hey, honey, let's go back to my classroom and, uh, you know, play some music. Well, R. Kelly or something, right? Oh, come on. What is this a symptom of? This is a symptom of the death of government schooling. This cannot make it much longer. When I see things like this, and this is not a new problem. I remember talking to a teacher back when I was still in sales for Fluke Network. So we're talking 15, 20 years ago, okay? Um, who was it, was, it was odd to me to have this conversation. She was a very nice-looking blonde woman. Uh, looked like she made pretty good money to me based on the way she was dressed, her jewelry, etc. Lamenting that she could not afford to live close to where she taught at school uh, in New York City. And she had to take these extremely long train rides just to be able, and she was still barely able to afford her house and its property taxes. So th that, that's a, a, an ongoing problem. When, when the, the people in charge of the school systems will start proposing this as a solution, though, you realize that you're, 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 you're throwing like the Hail Mary passes now, the desperation passes. And people say, well, that's Dade County, Jack, or that's New York City, Jack. You know, that's, that's not everywhere. 
Yeah, but see, it's the canary in the coal mine. These types of things always start on these outliers. And then it always builds. And at the same time, what did we just talk about a couple uh, weeks ago? We're having teachers go on strike demanding more money, and states are caving and giving in to teachers' demands because of the PR campaign. That, you know, not all heroes wear capes. Some of them teach. Yeah, not all teachers are heroes, guys. In fact, most teachers are not heroes. Just like, by the way, most, most soldiers are not heroes. That's why we have medals for the soldiers that are heroes. And not everybody gets a medal as a hero. I know guys that have been in the military for 15 years. You look at their chest, it's covered in ribbons. Each one of those ribbons represents metal. Some of those ribbons have a little, like an oak leaf cluster. That represents two of those medals. And there'll be things like, you know, the Army Achievement Medal or the Army Commendation Medal, etc. And maybe one of those medals is for some sort of heroic action. If it's not in wartime, maybe it's something like a soldier's medal. If it is in wartime, maybe it's something like a bronze star. But in general, even with all those ribbons, they're not heroes. They did their job really good. That's what most of those medals are for. Performing above and beyond the call of duty as a mechanic does not make you a hero. Okay, so if not all soldiers are heroes, then we know not all teachers are heroes. And they have their own medals, don't they? That doesn't necessarily mean they're heroes either. You see what I'm saying? But we've convinced people that this is true. We've convinced people that every teacher deserves a raise. Whoa, what do you mean they don't deserve a raise? They have to buy tissues for their students because they don't get paid enough. And it all depends on where you're a teacher, doesn't it? Right? Well, in the end, you're asking for people to pay the bills. And there's a point where they go, wait a minute, what? I, I don't have any more money. When you have people with a $250,000 house paying $5,000 a year in property tax, you got to really think about what that means to their bottom line budget. What is $5,000 a year month in a monthly payment added to your home? The answer is $416. To put that in perspective... I'm driving a car, my wife really drives it more than me, with a $46,000 price tag on it for $316 a month on a lease. I drive a car that's almost worth fifty grand for somebody to buy for less than the property taxes people pay on a quarter million dollar house. You, you really got to think about that when we say that we, you know, we're not spending enough on education. We're overspending on education. Because we're doing it wrong. And so there's only two solutions here. One is the government educational complex collapses, or two, it adapts. And it has to adapt with drastic changes that it's probably not capable of making, and certainly the teacher unions will not help any with this. I've said it's 10 to 20 years before this thing's completely dead. The more I look at it, the more I think it can't make it 10. And I'm not saying in like five years, let's say five years I go, here it is. I'm not saying there won't be any government schools. I'm saying that the, the number will be drastically reduced and everything will be in a chaos mode. And you're going to see this happen at, the, at, at the, the collegiate level as well. In fact, I think the collegiate level will start to get hurt really bad sooner. But it's all going to come crashing to the ground. And all I'm saying is be prepared for it. It will be one of the biggest disruptions in, in our economy to ever occur. People don't have any idea how big a piece of the economy this is. So there will be the too big to fail argument. 
But the problem is, more and more people are saying, I don't care if it fails. I don't care if it fails. What about this poor kid that lives on the bad side of town who's not going to get an education? Hey, it's education shit right now anyway. There has to be a better education for him than the one he's getting. I don't want my kids to go to the school he's going to. Maybe he's better off not going either. And whether you think that's right or wrong, this is how people are going to start to feel. The, you, you, they, the, the screws have been turned. And you got it going on at the same time those screws are being turned on the cost of health insurance that's mandated. It's, it's going to get nasty. And, and be prepared for the next, next recession, whenever it hits, to be a lot worse than the one that we went through 2008, 2009, that we're still honestly recovering from. I say we, fully have, re, we have fully recovered at this point, but we're still recovering, okay, if that makes sense. Um, it's closer than you think. I'm just going to say that one more time. It's closer than you think, the death knell of government education. With that, let me remind you a real simple way that you can help support our show. Do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's all I'm going to say about that today. Let's talk about our song of the day. Our song of the day is a song called These Days by Foo Fighters. When I heard These Days, I was like, is it a cover of the Rascal Flats one? No, no, no. It's much more angry. Um, Dave Grohl, who uh, was the drummer in Nirvana, I don't know if everybody knows that or not, um, said to Q Magazine, he's the... I should say, I guess, oh, let's not leave it there, right? So Dave Dave Grohl, who was the drummer, the longest-serving drummer in the band Nirvana, up until Cobain killed himself, um, is the lead singer of the Foo Fighters. And um, he said to Q Magazine, he thinks this meditation on heartbreak and loss, quote, might be the best song I've ever written. Uh, Rolling Stone liked it, too, naming it their fourth-best single of 2011. And... Uh, Grohl says, every night I sing it, I still get choked up. So I think there's real raw emotion in this song. And if you listen to the lyrics, it sounds like it's talking about death, either for a person or for the whole planet at first. One of these days, the ground will drop out from beneath your feet. One of these days, your heart will stop and play its final beat. One of these days, the clocks will stop and time won't mean a thing. One of these days, their bombs will drop and silence everything. I had actually never heard this song before John Adams said it to me. When I, I just when I get his list, I'll just click and listen randomly. And when I heard that, I was like, holy shit, this is like an end of the world song. I, and I like the Foo Fighters, but I really hadn't heard this. And this is all kind of like the like song goes soft and hard, soft and hard. And those lines are in the soft chorus. And then it busts off, man. It's like, but it's all right. Yes, it's all right. Said it's all right. Easy for you to say. Your heart has never been broken. Your pride has never been stolen. Not yet, not yet, one of these days. I bet your heart will be broken. I bet your pride will be stolen. I bet, I'll bet, I'll bet, I'll bet. One of these days, one of these days. And what this song's about is losing someone and how bad it hurts and how it feels like you're dying. And But what it's really about with, like, you know, your heart's never been broken, your pride's never been stolen, it's... When we have someone in our lives going through something painful, whether it's an ended relationship, whether it's a lost loved one, whether it's a lost opportunity, no matter what it is, when they're really hurting from something, what do you always want to do? You want to make them feel better. So you tell them you understand. You tell them it'll get better. You'll recover. right? It'll be okay. And when they're in the, the peak of that pain, their natural reaction is this song. You don't know shit. And what... 
And there's times where people are like that, and they know damn well you know what it's like. They know damn well you've been through it. They were the person telling you it was going to be okay when it did happen to you last year, and they know you got through it. But you know what they're really saying when they say that? I want to feel this pain right now. I don't want you to take it away from me. The only thing that can take it away from me is having this thing I've lost back, and I know I can't have that. And subconsciously what they're saying is, I know I must grieve. Let me grieve. And I think the message there, I'm always trying to be positive with you guys and saying, you know, I'm the guy saying it's going to be okay. You can make it okay. You can get, if you're, if you can fog a mirror, your mission's not done. And I believe all that. But it's also important to understand, there are times for grief. And sometimes if we don't let ourselves grieve, then we're not able to get better. And we look like we get better, but inside we have emotional gangrene. And it eats away inside. And these are the people that eventually harm themselves or destroy their lives or take their own lives. So when there is a time for grieving, do it. Grieve. And don't be afraid to say sometimes, even in the well-meaning, you don't understand right now. Because no one understands, even if they've been through the same thing, because no one is you. They may understand better than a person who hasn't. So if you had a close relationship with your father, and I had a close relationship with my father, and my father passed away last year, and your father passed away this year, I can say I understand. And the guy that has a close relationship with his father that's still alive, and they're still hanging out every day, I probably do understand how you feel better than him, even though he can empathize. But I don't understand what it's like to be you. I'm not you, and your father wasn't my father. So at times it's okay to say, you don't understand. Let me grieve. Let me be angry. One of the best things we did for my son when his birth father died is we got him counseling. First we took him to a psychologist who immediately wanted to put him on antidepressant drugs. And after a conversation where I came an inch and a half away from putting him two feet through a wall, a brick wall at that, and we walked out of there, we found him an actual counselor, which is what we were really looking for. And one of the things he told our son, because my son said he was mad at God, And he said, it's okay for you to be mad at God. You have a right to be mad. You have a right to be sad. It's okay for you to feel this way. And I think it was one of the best things that anybody that you know wasn't his family ever said to him. It was one of the best decisions we ever made. Grieve, be angry, be sad, be mad. In the end, in the end, when you do, it'll be okay. I'm going to see if I can find a... Uh, a poem I wrote, because I can't remember it from memory, many, many years ago, over 20 years ago. If I find it, maybe when I get back from Tennessee, I'll read it to you guys. But it's called The Storm. And it's an emotional storm, exactly like this. And it's 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 this, this anger and this pain. And it, it describes time as a surgeon who is mercilessly operating on you. And then the storm's eye comes... And it's calm and you think it's done and then it comes again and it's even worse. But in the end, time is a good surgeon and the wounds do heal. I just kind of want to get out of this song. I'm kind of amazed that I had never heard it before. But since it came out in 2011 and I'm kind of rooted in prior decades, I guess that's why. With that, hope you enjoy your Friday. This has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if time gets tough. Times get tough, or even if they don't. Days the ground
easy for you to see.